Greetings and welcome to episode number 18 of the Classical Guitar Composers Podcast. As always, I am your host, Chris Hales. Very glad to be bringing this show to you once again. This is the show that features original classical guitar compositions from around the globe. Your compositions. The way it works is, if you have a piece of guitar music you'd like to have featured on the show, you simply send an mp3 recording to chris at classicalguitarcomposers.com. It's as simple as that. Send me your classical guitar piece, and it's played on the show. We featured a lot of great composers on this show to date, and we have many more to come. And looking ahead today, we have a great show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. give you a little update of what's happening in my life. I like to read and uh, I generally go to the library, you know, find find something and, and with the libraries being closed right now, I've been uh, kind of digging through the shelves of my house and uh, I pull I, I went downstairs and I brought up three books and the, you know, it was a little while ago, but the three books I brought up were Cycle of the Werewolf by Stephen King. I'd never read it. Uh, it's a little novella, but the movie, um, Silver Bullet, that was made from this novella, is one of my favorite little horror movies. It's an absolute wonderful movie, Silver Bullet. So, I gave it a try, and uh, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. I, I actually think I liked the movie better on this one, but the book is nice. The second book that I brought up is a book called Eric Bright Eyes by H. Ryder Haggard, author of King Solomon's Mines. And what was interesting about this one was I'm looking at this thing and, and these pages are they're they're just different and, and it's clearly old and so I'm I'm going through a I'm looking for the copyright and it says copyright 1891 by United States Book Company. Now, my first assumption is that that's when he wrote it, or when the first publication was, but uh, this edition, turns out, is actually from 1891. In the back of it, it talks about, uh, check out the latest work by up-and-coming author Rudyard Kipling. (laughs) So that'll give you an idea about how old this book was. So... I ended up reading this very delicate book that's, you know, about 130 years old. And the book itself was pretty good. You know, it's uh, just some classic literature, a Norse Viking tale. It's very folktale-like. A good read. I I quite enjoyed it. But I had no idea that we owned such an old book, so that was kind of a cool discovery in the basement. The third book I grabbed, which I am currently reading right now, is a book that I read a good, I want to say, it was probably a good 12 years ago or so. The book is called A Confederacy of Dunces by John, I think it's John Kennedy O'Toole. I don't have it in front of me right now. If you have not read about the adventures of Ignatius Riley in New Orleans... I, I think you should go ahead and do that before 
before you leave this world. It is a hilarious book, but but reading it now, what has struck me is how timeless the book is. And this was written in the 1960s, I believe. Um, and the main character is an absolute perfect internet troll. But he's in the 1960s. And I've never thought about how such a person could exist outside of the time we live in, but if you've ever wondered what a a classic internet troll would be like <laughs> in a time before the internet, read A Confederacy of Dunces. It's a brilliant book. It's absolutely hilarious, and I'm very much enjoying that. Ignatius Riley, the main character, is basically a a prehistoric internet troll obsessed with medieval culture. He plays the loot, and he's a butthead to his mom. On a more interesting note with my life, I, I have been in this on-again, off-again relationship with The Diabolic Caprice by Castle Nuovo Tedesco. The Diabolic Caprice is one of my favorite guitar pieces ever. It's a caprice, it's it's a theme in variations in form, and it's just an absolutely wonderful composition. I'm sure most of you have heard it. So the reason for the on-again, off-again status between me and this piece has nothing to do with uh, the merit of the piece itself. It has to do with the difficulty. It's a difficult piece to play, and here is my struggle. I have this wonderful edition uh, printed by Ricordi in 2005, and it is the original edition that Mario wrote, meaning pre-Segovia's changes. So, I'm sure most of you know, but if you don't know, the way it worked with Segovia's commissions of a lot of these composers that didn't play guitar, such as Tedesco, uh, Tedesco would write the piece, his ideal version of the piece. This is, here's my music. And then Segovia would take it and revise it, because Tedesco was not trained on guitar, a lot of his stuff would be unplayable or whatnot. But he had a basic understanding. I mean, it's clear that these guys like Tedesco and Taroba, they, they had some understanding of the guitar because they're not that far. They're not that far off most of the time. So it makes sense that Segovia would uh, take out his red pen and make some edits and send it back and then the it, this would go back and forth the composer would you know basically come back with a counter and be like okay how about this and what would finally end up going to the publisher would be Segovia's final edits so he made the final decision and uh, as a guitarist it's, that makes sense to me but as a composer I'm like Ugh. you know and so and and this is where I struggle with Segovia is uh, I think I think he was very what's the word I'm looking for liberal with his changes so I, I tend to want to really as much as possible honor what the composer wrote unless it's impossible to play uh, so anytime I'm working on these pieces that Segovia commissioned which there's so many just incredible pieces from the that he commissioned 
uh, I usually try to find out what he changed, you know, and um, in some cases, like Taroba's Castles of Spain, I think Segovia's edits were very good for the most part. Uh, I think he, I think that's one case where he really improved the pieces. The Diabolic Caprice is not. I, I think that Segovia, I think he went too far with this one. So what, where I'm torn between is to play Segovia's playable version and Tedesco's very, very difficult version. Because his version, what Tedesco wrote, can be played on the guitar, but not really to quite the speed that most people play this piece at. And even even playing it a little slower, it's it's pretty taxing on your on your fingers. But the uh, I want to read a little bit from this preface because I find this interesting. And this preface is written by the Italian composer Angelo Gilardino. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I I, I find this very interesting. And this is uh, because of this, I tend to want to honor Tedesco's original notes as much as possible. Uh, in the case of the Diabolic Caprice, Tedesco was not necessarily happy with Segovia's changes. So, he not only changed stuff harmonically and played this thing very uh, freely, he also cut like 24 measures. And I, I really don't know why he cut those measures. They're, it wasn't a difficulty issue. He must have just thought it was going on too long. But I think the, the measures he cut are crucial uh, to lead to the, the grand ending. I mean, they, they bring you into it. So here's a little excerpt from this preface. The composer wrote the first score of the Capriccio Diabolical with his usual skill and attention. Every detail is finished to perfection. This score was, however, heavily corrected by Segovia in various places, and sometimes quite drastically cut. In the Capriccio Diabolical, for example, some 24 bars in the coda were eliminated. The changes made by Segovia to the Caprice are written alongside the original score as if they were alternatives. It is likely that Castle Nuovo Tedesco accepted Segovia's corrections. He did so on other occasions, though this does not necessarily mean that he preferred the altered score to his original. In fact, the present writer received letters in which the composer clearly expressed his desire that other guitarists should see the original scores prior to their publication with Segovia's corrections, which he always considered had been forcibly extracted from him, <laughs> even though he naturally had unconditioned respect for Segovia. The changes made by Segovia aimed at making certain passages more fluent and cantabile to suit his own style of playing led to a sort of destructuring of the piece, and since Castle Nuovo Tedesco was a composer who never wrote a single note with ha without it having a precise reason for being there, one can easily understand the overall shape of the piece was weakened. This left the composer dissatisfied, and in 1945 he attempted to recover the work by preparing a version for guitar and orchestra which was not unpublished. Uh, that's kind of a weird sentence. This is translated, which was not unpublished. And I believe that's been performed, so maybe that's just a weird way of saying that it was published. I'm not really sure. 
It says uh, that version is Opus 85, number two, which was not unpublished. It is late at night. Uh, maybe I'm just struggling with this. Anyway, as you can imagine, that pissed Segovia off. <laughs> he threatened to never play Tedesco's music again. I really side with Tedesco on this one. Um, I, I come down on the, the composer's side almost always. I, I think playability is important, but Segovia went way beyond playability. Uh, as Gilardino wrote, every single note had a reason for being there. And I think as a composer, I, I, I can only imagine um, Tedesco's frustration with this incredible piece he wrote and Segovia just tearing it apart. That's a side of Segovia I struggle with. Anyway, uh, a little later, I, I find this really interesting too. So uh, this author has clearly had some correspondence with Tedesco, knew him a little bit. And I'm just going to read a little, read on a little bit farther. Speaking of this edition, it says, The edition aims to return to the original and to safeguard the formal values of the composition. In fact, after reinstating the 24 bars removed by Segovia, we have also restored the original harmonic context of certain passages that might well be harder to play, and hence slower, but are certainly more complete and satisfying. Note also the re-established contextual coherence of the episode with repeated notes, in which the rhythm and articulation intended by the composer make this section conform perfectly to the overall architecture of the piece. Various other details restored to their original form add to the unity and compactness of the piece. One curious fact is that Castle... This is the part I was really meaning to get to. One curious fact is that Castle Nuovo Tedesco did not include the theme of Paganini's La Capagnola in the epilogue. Instead, it was later deliberately introduced by Segovia, as we see from his note on the manuscript. In fact, this quote always sounded pretentious and embarrassing. When I wrote to the composer back in 1967, saying that it seemed more like a bar out of Helsapoppen, he didn't contradict me. Indeed, when I looked at the manuscript, I found that it wasn't Castle Nuovo Tedesco's at all. Now, I find that interesting too. And this is sort of the basis as to why I've always um, imagined Tedesco as being a very humble character. And I didn't feel like he was portrayed that way in the movie that came out last year. Uh... But I find that really interesting. So Segovia takes this ending and shoves in a Paganini quote after he's already demolished this piece. Then later, this composer flat out tells Tedesco that, that that's really stupid. You know, you're, <laughs> that, that little ending you put on your piece is, is pretentious and stupid. And Tedesco's like, yeah. And he, he doesn't even say, well, yeah, I didn't do that. <laughs> Talk to the pretentious diva. Didn't say anything at all. I think it speaks to a lot to his character, and I can certainly say that I would have not kept my mouth shut about that. Anyway, uh, The Diabolic Caprice was written as an homage to Paganini at Segovia's request. And so I don't know if Segovia didn't think it was Paganini enough and thought that it should have a direct quote. Although 
the piece already actually does have some pretty clever little Paganini quotes in it. Anyway, uh, so maybe this edition, uh, just based on what I read, I think it might not be exactly as he laid it out, but it looks like they revised it to to reflect what Tedesco wrote. I believe that Zagante was a, as a, an advisor on this, Frederick Zagante. Yeah, I'll have to read the whole thing again. It's been a while. But anyway, one of my favorite pieces. And uh, I'm trying to find the happy place between what Tedesco wrote and Segovia made playable. And I, I do have that worked out, like the way I play it, and then I practiced it and I get it up to speed and then I just kind of get sick of it because it's still, it's still very difficult. I tried to preserve as much as I could. And it's long. And uh, I just don't have the practice chops that I used to. I don't have the time, and so it's it's hard to take on a piece of that magnitude, but I keep coming back to it. So anyway, in the on-again, off-again relationship, we're currently off, and uh, I'm having a fling with another one of my favorite pieces that's been growing on me over the last couple of years, and that is the Taroba Fantasy in A Minor Sonata. So it's a three-movement sonata. That's an incredible piece, and... It's, it's the one I'm really focused on right now, and maybe next episode we'll get more deeply into it, but the, the first movement has just, it's very dissonant and um, very modal at times, uh, some Ionian modal stuff in there, uh, Ionian, not Ionian, Aeolian, I mix those two up all the time, do you know what, uh, I mentioned Andrew Aylward about his piece I th in the previous episode. I made a reference to him using the Ionian mode. I, I meant the Aeolian mode. I did it there too. Aeolian. Anyway, it's an incredible piece. Uh, it's one that was discovered later. Segovia never performed it. So there are some reflections on where I am at in my life. Reading some books out of the basement and pulling some wonderful classical guitar music off the shelf. So with that, let's move on with the show. I have some emails I'd like to read, and then we will get into the music. So this first email is from our good friend Lance Olivieri. If you remember, we featured Lance in episode... I want to say 13, but now let me... Episode number 12. And uh, I very much enjoyed Lance's pieces, so a little update from Lance. He says, Chris, I am continuing to enjoy and appreciate your podcast. I recently moved from Maine to Santa Fe just before the COVID crisis. Phew. Lance wrote this to me, by the way, uh, in April, mid-April. The move and all the upset that it requires has kept me away from the guitar and composing, and that hurts a lot. Also, missing was time to get a good listen to your excellently played original pieces, also from your podcast and its growing group of composing con contributors. Today, a beautiful April morning, I get the chance to let it all in and pass you a quick note. I'd like to exclaim to all of the guitarists that follow, listen, and contribute to your podcast how fortunate to be in such accomplished company as yourself. That's far too kind of you, Lance. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Accomplished would be a strong word, but uh, I, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you, you guys enjoy it. 
Secondly, your service devoted to all who are inspired by the magic of classical guitar music, the instrument and its infinite possibilities for the future is to be commended. Thank you for contributing your time and effort to our cause. I really appreciate that, Lance. Thank you. Uh, it, it, it is nice to hear something like that. I will say I, I just love doing this. I love sitting down. I have I do this thing now where I don't listen to the pieces beforehand. I just give a quick listen to make sure it's going to work for the show. But I listen when I do the show. And I sit back. I, I drink iced tea. And I listen to your music uh, to all who send in. And it's fun. And so I, but that being said, um, editing the podcast can be a little bit exhausting. And so it, it is nice to hear that. It's just very nice to hear that. So thank you. Lance goes on. Secondly, guys, look at this incredible resource of new material to add to our play out repertoire. I wish there was enough time to learn many of the pieces I have heard here. New material. Maybe we should make an effort to get each other's material out there by playing them in public. Chris, you might not hear from us, but we are listening. And to all the other composers, continue on and stay inspired. There is so much to write about in this difficult and colorful world. Best to all of you, Lance Olivieri. Once again, thank you, Lance. And I love what you said there about playing uh, each other's pieces. That's something I have personally wanted to get more into and incorporate into my playing. I've sat down and, and read through, a, a lot of you have sent me scores, which, again, thank you very much. If you send me scores, they, I, I, I'm a score hoarder, I love it, <laughs> and uh, they are not cast aside, they are filed away neatly, and uh, I, I have every intention of playing through everything. I have not played through everything, but I'm, I'd like to. I did, uh, like, Daniel Ainsworth sent me uh, some etudes, and I'll be mentioning Daniel again here shortly, but uh, he sent me some etudes a while back, etudes a while back, and uh, I, I just did a little video of me playing the first one and put it on Twitter. I want to do more things like that. Some of the pieces are more difficult than others, but they are, there's many worth doing, including uh, those of Lance's and uh, if you haven't heard his, I encourage you to go back to episode 12 and listen. And you can always go to classicalguitarcomposers.com and see any links to um, a lot of the composers have made their stuff available. A lot of it's available, available for purchase, which is a great thing to do uh, to support other composers to support other composers if you enjoy their music. So I like that idea a lot, Lance. And I I also, uh, I got an email from SoundCloud saying that uh, Lance had shared one of my pieces. So thank you for that too, Lance. That's much appreciated. I, I've kind of forgotten about SoundCloud and I, I need to get on there and update. I ought to throw some more up there. Anyway, and I hope you're doing well in Santa Fe as well. I like New Mexico. Uh, the next email I'm going to read is from Freya Shaw. Freya was one of the two composers we featured in the previous episode. And Freya sent us something a little different. It was the the soundscape recording. And uh, it was it was a lot of stuff happening around a classical guitar. It was, it was kind of fun to feature something a little different like that on the show. 
but she wrote, Hey Chris, I hope you're well. I listened to the latest podcast episode and I'm so pleased I was a part of it. I would love to send more music into your show in the future. As far as the conversation about if major is easier or more difficult to compose in compared to minor, I personally find that I seem to write more pieces in major. I just naturally find that I like writing in major. It's not really a conscious effort, it just happens. Can you suggest any good sample packages for someone who wants a good and realistic sound but doesn't want to pay a large amount for it? Thanks again and keep up with the great work. I would also like to hear some more of your own work on the podcast. Smiley face. Thank you, Freya. Uh, so I responded to Freya and gave her some suggestions on the sample packages. That's regarding uh, like sampled orchestras. Basically, my suggestion was a good place to start looking is uh, Versillian Studios. They have a lot of different levels of stuff, and I think they even have some free stuff, and it, it might be a good place to just try messing with it before you take the plunge and <laughs> start buying up sample libraries. I realize now she said to hear some more of your own work on the podcast. I was thinking she said I would like to hear some of your work. I was going to say episode number one, you can hear uh, some music of mine, and if you listen to the 2019 October episode, you can hear something from me there as well. I've splashed a couple of my pieces around throughout. Um, yeah, I will. I will throw some more as we go. I've been using uh, a piece I wrote a little while ago as the uh, the uh, what would you call it <laughs> coming out of the the ad I'm doing right now uh, in the middle of the show. That's that music that I've been using to bring us back in is a piece that I wrote quite a while ago. It's one of my earlier efforts at composing and. Uh, maybe at some point I will feature that piece in its entirety. It's not very long. It's just a little rondo that I wrote. But um, yeah, I, I'll be splashing some of mine in through the show. Uh, honestly, I what I want to do is compose more and, and share current pieces. I, I like Every now and then I like to reach back and throw something. But I, I, I'm not as proud of some of my older compositions. As, you know what I mean? I'm sure all of us are that way to a certain extent where... I feel that I am improving with my compositional skills from year to year. I was composing more pieces 10 years ago, a, a larger volume of pieces, but the quality isn't as good. Speaking of submissions, we actually, we, me and my staff, uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of submissions coming in. Uh, I'm actually getting a bit of a backlog. So if you are wanting to get on the show, you will get on the show, uh, but you're at this point uh, you're getting in line. We're, we're a few months out right now, so if you're if you're emailing me a piece right now, it's you're gonna hear it in a couple of months most likely. However, if it if this keeps up, I'm gonna start adding more music into that segment of the show, feature two or three composers at a time, and a little less me talking, and I'm okay with that. But I'm I need to make sure it's sustainable first. So if it does move in that direction, fear not, you will still get my exhausting opening monologues, but they will probably be better because I'll have to I'll have to keep it more concise and really be more choosy about what I'm gonna talk about. The good news more than anything is that the show continues on. Today, however, uh, we'll still be going with a single composer. 
Okay, let's take a break and then let's move into the musical portion of the show. Got a good one today. Hey, like me, are you addicted to sheet music? Then let me tell you about Encoda. Encoda is an app that lets you practice, play, and perform your sheet music. It is a streaming service similar to Netflix and Spotify with tens of thousands of titles. That's millions of pages of sheet music available instantly at your fingertips. Subscribers have access to the finest editions from Boozy and Hawks, Baron Ryder, Chester, Novello, and many, many more. And they have received praise from Sir Simon Rattle and Joyce D. Donato. And if you're not sure, you can sign up for a free trial. Download Encoda from your app store today. That's Encoda, N-K-O-D-A. And be sure to let them know that the Classical Guitar Composers podcast sent you. So, uh, I've been uh, I've been watching this channel. This is a it's not a new thing, but it's new to me. <laughs> this concept of urban exploration. I've been watching this channel on YouTube called The Proper People, where these dudes go into like abandoned places, and it's it's totally illegal. They're <laughs> like trespassing, and uh, they like film themselves going around like abandoned theme parks and stuff. And man, it's like it's fascinating. I love it. And uh, what I've been doing the last couple of years around uh, my home state of Utah is just trying to see more of it. Utah is awesome, and I've lived here my whole life, and I've realized how much of it I haven't seen. So every year we've been trying to just hit places in Utah we haven't seen. And, you know, last week uh, I think I got a little bit inspired by the show. We went around, there's a lot of ghost towns in Utah, so we went around uh, checking out some ghost towns that turned out to mostly just be mining remnants, but a lot of really neat stuff. It was pretty fun. So today's composer that we will be featuring is Martin Slater, who hails to us from Eastleigh, Hampshire in the UK. So England is coming in strong. Got two two episodes in a row. Okay, I've actually had a lot of correspondence with Martin since he originally wrote. Uh, back in March. This comes clear back in March, so remember, again, uh, if you want to get on the show, you need to get in line. But you will be featured. It's just a longer wait period than it has been in the past. Martin wrote in the original email, Hello, Chris. Back in the early 80s, I had a burst of creativity which produced about 40 pieces of music for the classical guitar. These were entirely self-taught in origin. Many things have happened since then, and I do still have ambitions to do more, having since had a far wider musical education. Anyway, I made a recording in tape in 2010 of 18 of them which a friend transferred to CD. These were 12 studies, 5 tone pictures, and a lullaby. All exist in handwritten score, as Sibelius, etc., had not even been dreamt of at the time. I discovered you through Daniel Ainsworth, a member of the Del Camp Classical Guitar Forum. You say you are willing to have a go at playing unrecorded pieces, so I will take this offer up by sending my only published work, which appeared in Guitar International in January 1986 as part of a teaching series by the English guitarist John Mills and recordings of my five tone pictures and a lullaby. Scores available. When published, John made a few editorial changes, which I accepted, but the resolve movement was changed the most. I prefer my original, but I will send both versions of that. You might find the comparison and his performance notes of interest. <laughs> well, that's certainly relevant today. Regarding the tone pictures, and those are the ones we'll be hearing today. Side note. 
Regarding the tone pictures, simply let the titles fuel your imagination. Sincerely, Martin Slater. All right, so this is very cool. Uh, I feel like we are dipping into some classical guitar history. Published work in Guitar International in January 1986. This is really cool. So thank you, Martin. Uh, as far as I did make an offer, I said that if people want to send in pieces, I'm willing to take a shot at recording them, but you are at my discretion. Anyway, uh, that offer still stands. However, it's kind of on a need basis, so I'm not as likely to record pieces right now while we have them coming in. Um, if I do, it's more likely I would like to out of interest in the pieces and just playing as we were discovering, we were discussing from Lance's email earlier in the show. That being said, uh, consider what I was saying about Tedesco's changes. I, I take your side immediately, Martin. <laughs> I would I would play your version because I I, def I default to the composer. I don't hold myself in the esteem of composers, of course, like the greats. But I I have an appreciation as a musician for composers like that that. I feel like the composers deserve to be honored with their work. Uh, I do feel that if you don't like a piece of music, write your own <laughs> or find a different one. But I will, I will, I will look at uh, what John Mills did, though. Let's see. Uh, Martin also. Like I said, we've had a lot of correspondence, so before we jump into his pieces, he also wrote this to me. Chris, I have realized a fact. I have never specifically analyzed the actual keys of my pieces. Whilst you will probably find out anyway, I need to get it straight in my own head. Okay, so I am, slash was, to put it succinctly, an A composer. For that, I think the guitar's response is... <laughs> For that, I think the guitar is the responsible individual. Still, actual tonality was evidently not my first priority. I seem to have done quite a lot in that respect. Does it really matter? I'm going to say, I'm going to answer that question, no. Only as a curiosity, not in an evaluation of the merit of the piece. I posed that question as a curiosity, nothing more. Martin goes on. In truth, there are a limited number of keys that can be comfortably, comfortably played on the guitar anyway. This contrasts greatly with almost all other instruments. Nevertheless, I will be far more aware of this salient fact if and when I actually attempt another piece. Martin. That leads me to another question I would uh, pose to you. Are, do you. Do any of you struggle with our limited amount of keys that we can play in comfortably on the guitar? My my approach is this: if I'm going to write anything that's like a larger scale piece, uh, like a multi movement thing or anything that's really even longer than like two minutes, I I write it in a guitaristic key. At least as far as its home key. There's not a lot of guitar pieces in B flat minor, and there's a good reason for that. But does that bother you? pianists you know they can play in any key and they they really think they're pretty cool about that but uh like my friend uh jeremy loves the key of d flat <laughs> and 
I do too. I often think of it as D sh as C sharp because of Bach's well-tempered clavier books. He wrote them in C sharp major rather than D flat. Uh, I think a lot of that is mental. I feel like D flat and C sharp major are two different keys. That I mean, that tells you how mental some of this is. But uh, yeah, it just doesn't resonate on the guitar, D flat. So, but that being said, I don't think we should uh, avoid those keys. That's my take on it. I, I would love to. Well, one of my many projects that are in some state of being uh i i eventually like to finish a small prelude like in every key and i want them to be just that just small pieces i want there to be guitar pieces in a flat and it's okay if they're just tiny preludes i think that's all we need so that's my take on that what is yours i i am curious does that bother you or do you uh do you solve it with tunings and capos I'm not the most adventurous person with tunings. I I like drop D a lot. I I do a lot in drop D, and I reluctantly use the that G tuning that uh, we use for like Albanias and Granados. And if I'm really feeling spicy, I use this tuning that David Russell used for his arrangement of Neil Gow's Lament for the Death of His Second Wife. That's a very pretty little arrangement, and David Russell just nailed it. That's an awesome tuning, but I try to, I just avoid retuning my guitar. <laughs> There's a, that piece called Koyun Baba by Carlo Domeniconi. piece is so fun to play, and it's such an awesome piece, but man, that tuning is just, it's a deterrent. I, I actually kept a guitar in that tuning for a while, uh, and that's really my way to do it. Like, I just take a a different guitar and put it in that tuning and leave it there but uh, as far as composing I, I'm just not very adventurous with tunings anyway Martin's saying he's succinctly an A composer and that was the choice of the guitar <laughs> that's yeah uh, if if you write a you know 15 minute multi-movement sonata in E flat major I'm not going to learn it I'm just you know I, I'm going to find something else to play. <laughs> but if you've written, you know, something short and gettable, I'd, you know, totally check out your piece in E-flat. Moving on, let's play Martin's music, and we're going to call it a show. Uh, so once again, thank you so much, Martin, for sending these in, and uh, I'm glad to have you as a part of the show. I'm looking forward to more correspondence in the future and hopefully more music as well. Uh, you also mentioned, Martin, the classical Del Camp and Daniel Ainsworth. I want to really thank Daniel Ainsworth. I've, I've had a lot of people come to the show who've told me they heard of it from Daniel Ainsworth. So thank you so much, Daniel. And you can hear some duets Daniel wrote. Very cool duets. Uh, Kind of in the vein of Brower in I I don't remember what I I think it was like last it would be the September episode I think from last year so probably episode 10 episode 10 all right we will now be hearing five tone pictures and a lullaby by Martin Slater the tone pictures are titled by the river green meadows Sun and Cloud, 
spring haze, and hazy summer in that order.
one more from Martin. This is a separate piece called Lullaby. it is. We've just heard Five Tone Pictures and A Lullaby by Martin Slater. Thank you, Martin. I have to say, I've always, you know, we talk about uh, recording techniques on this show and whatnot. There's a charm for me in the sound of, of music just recorded straight onto a tape, and I really enjoyed that. I'm going to read uh, one more email from Martin. Uh, this was a response to the previous episode. He said, Hello, Chris. Thanks for another entertaining and thought-provoking episode. Apart from your kind quotes from myself, the first thing that I picked up on was synesthesia. Initially, I knew about two such composers, the most significant of which was the Russian Alexander Skriabin, who included a color-casting instrument in the score for his piece Prometheus Unbound. The other was the French composer Olivier Messiaen. I'm sure I'm saying that one wrong. I'm not familiar with him. There were, however, others, and he sent me a link. I'm going to put that up on the show page for today. You can check that out by going to www.classicalguitarcomposers.com. I am a, 
a fan of Scriob, and I actually uh, transcribed one of his preludes for two guitars. And uh, I had forgotten that he did some things with colors, but I, I never really knew what they were. He says, Freya's music was certainly original, but again, there's another composer who has employed similar effects, the Finnish composer. I know you, Hani, Rotavara. The Finnish composer included birdsong in his Cantus Arcticus. So there you go, another uh, composer I'm not familiar with, but uh, in response to the previous episode where we heard a piece that included birdsong by Freya Shaw. Jorge Morel once played for us in the UK, and I even got his autograph. I actually regard him as a modern-day barrio. That's pretty cool. After uh, I talked about that, I actually pulled a couple of my Morel pieces off of the shelf, and they're sitting on the music stand. I've, I've read through one of them. There's two. I read through one of them the other night. It's something I've got to cross off my list at some point. Martin goes on. Have connected to your YouTube. You look Brahmsian. <laughs> Compliment. <laughs> I'm assuming you're referring to my beard, which uh, right now I'm not looking too Brahmsy and I've got my summer face going. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I I take the approach of I grow the beard for six months and then I shave for six months to accommodate weather and uh, I get tired of shaving, I get tired of a beard, I just go back and forth. Can't make up my mind about anything. Brahms probably has a hundred pounds on me, though. <laughs> Speaking of Brahms, I don't know that I've ever heard a guitar arrangement of any of his music. He certainly didn't write anything for guitar. He's actually not my favorite composer. Uh, the thing with Brahms, I found, is uh, I can get into him like... Um, I once played in a piano concerto. Uh, like I played in the orchestra, and we played his second piano concerto. And I really enjoyed it, and I think with Brahms, it's one of those, like, I kind of have to get in and play it to enjoy it. But uh, in general, I find his compositions a little bit long-winded. But, I mean, you know, he's one of the all-time greats, and there's there's certainly no denying that. It just doesn't strike the nerve with me that other composers of his stature do. Uh, the last thing uh, Martin mentioned is Beethoven actually wrote a piece for mandolin. Very early ad light sort of stuff, but maybe worth a look. And yeah, I knew, I knew about that piece. Did we talk about mandolins on this show? I'm just curious. I don't remember. Is it... Yeah, I, I love the mandolin. It's one of my favorite instruments. And I actually, uh, on Encoda, I, there's quite a bit of mandolin music classical music written for mandolin that I've been kind of digging through. It's kind of fun. All the best, Martin. Well, thank you, Martin, for uh, contributing music for the show and as well sparking some conversation. I appreciate all of it in full, and I look forward to our continued correspondence, and I hope, and I hope we hear more music from you in the future. With that, I think it's time to wrap up the 2020 May edition of the Classical Guitar Composers podcast. I'd like to thank you for joining me today. And remember, if you have a piece or would just like to comment on the show, you can email me at chris at classicalguitarcomposers.com. Thank you all for listening and supporting the show. Once again, thank you to Martin Slater. 
the June show will be just around the corner. Until then, keep on plucking.